I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource, where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. This podcast was recorded in a live studio audience. <laughs> What's up, guys? Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan, the fitness man. It's your first time listening. Uh, this podcast is all about personal development, elk hunting learning curve, physical fitness, nutrition, mental toughness, all that good stuff. We recorded this live Q&A at a, our last Elk Shape camp of the 2020 season in Wisconsin, La Crosse, Wisconsin, and the a room of 20 guys, which 90% of them had never even killed an elk before. And they present some awesome questions. This might be one of my favorite podcasts ever. I really like some of the questions that these guys ask. So thank you to those guys for participating in the Elk Shape Camp. Uh, my co-pilot in this podcast is the Jason Phelps of Phelps Game Calls. He came with me to Wisconsin to help me put on this camp. And here's what I like about Jason Phelps. He, he is just a solid dude, for real. I've met a lot of people in the hunting industry. He's definitely one of my favorite, uh, probably biased because I work with him on the Elk Collective on the side. But truthfully, he's got such uh, a well-calculated approach to elk hunting. He's very surgical. He's an engineer by trade, so he's really smart, analytical, and just does things differently than I do, and I'm always learning from him. So he is on here as well. If you've never been to an elk shape camp, uh, I'm sure I'll talk about them quite a bit next year, but we're looking at doing six or seven locations in 2021. Uh, I'm still working on Pennsylvania. I'm trying to get it at Lancaster Archery, so I'm still waiting to try to book that. Uh, Going to try to do it in Nashville, Tennessee. I will tell you guys, though, I don't like traveling. I hate flying, so anytime I go east, that's at least uh, you know one layover, but I'll do it for you if you guys will sign up and check it out. And then uh, Seminole, Texas is definitely a go. That's in early February. I believe it's going to be February 5th through the 7th, and then I'm working on Boise, 
and Reno. And then I think we'll probably go back to Colorado with Phil Mendoza of Alpha Bow Hunting and No Limits Archery. Uh, just one of my favorite locations to do an elk shape camp. And those guys just understand what we're doing. So shout out to Lacrosse Archery. Uh, we've done oh, how many elk shape camps have we done? Almost 10. That was the best archery shop we've ever been to. These guys took everybody's, they took, I mean, it's hard to describe as you can tell, but for you guys listening, Imagine having an archery shop, the owner, come out and watch everyone shoot and work on their form and technique and make tweaks to their draw lengths, to their to their peep sizes, to their rests, their strings, everything as far as what they needed to do to bulletproof their setup. Then he came back in and did third axis on everyone's everyone's bow and they just serviced everybody. It was really special. And I, that's kind of what I would want to be the standard at any elk shape camp is we're trying to dope your weapon and make sure your technique there and your shot process. So they did such a good job. So shout out to them. Um, let's get into the podcast. Let's pay a couple bills real quick. Vortex, thank you for your support for the camps, for the podcast. Elk shape is the discount code to get 20% off their apparel. I'm using the 10 by 42 UHDs. That's my favorite binos for elk season. And so check them out. I'm actually going to wear probably a hoodie of theirs while elk hunting. They've got a whole new line. And I thought they made just optics, but apparently they make really good, legitimate, uh, soft goods. So check out their clothing line. Black Ovis, I give a shout out to them. Discount code is elk shape. Save 20% off. The owners of Black Ovis are super legit hunters, and they have really some great deals, and that should just help you save some money. Wilderness Athlete, Elk Shape 30, save 30% off your first purchase. I love WA and what they stand for and what they do. Climate, Elk Shape 20 will get you 20% off. Use the discount code ELKSHAPE400 to save $400 on a Baku e-bike and Lakewood products to get 10% off any of their bow cases, Elk Shape 2020. Uh, here we are. Middle of August, some of you elk seasons are starting right now, but for the rest of us, this is the final countdown. So this is where you want to peak on your fitness. This is where you want to peak on your shooting, and you want to make sure everything's ready to go. If you have a checklist, check it. If you don't, make one, then check it. How do you guys think these airplanes fly all across the world and we have such small percentage of failure? There's checklists, and you need an elk hunting checklist for all your gear. You don't want to be the guy who forgot his boots and you drive across the state or to another state and you're scrambling. If you don't have a backup boat, it's not too late to get one or to make arrangements so you're not having to travel to some bow shop and get strings put on because you cut your strings with a sharp broadhead or just anything that can go wrong will go wrong. We talk about that on this podcast today. I appreciate you guys listening and just know separation is in the preparation. Um, all right, welcome to Oak Shape Podcast. We are in Wisconsin. This episode is dropping. It's um, You're probably going to listen to this as you drive down to your elk camp for the September 2020 elk season. So uh, it's late August, uh, full of anticipation. Joining me is Jason Phelps, the, and we're with the squad of Wisconsin do-it-yourself elk hunters, some noobs, some veterans, and uh, we're going to do a live podcast here at Elk Shape Camp. Hi, Jason. How are you? Good, good. My uh, my voice may be gone from talking all day. I've made you do a lot of heavy lifting today. It's been good. It's I, I just feel guilty. I feel like I did too much and you didn't want me to. No, it's actually the opposite. I all feel right. like we – so yesterday we did a lot of just archery. Today's a lot of just elk, and then tomorrow will be a lot of nutrition, fitness, and whatever we can figure out. But we every camp is fluid. We have to pivot. Yep. I kind of wish right now we had more time working on calling. 
based yeah. on what I've seen. Um, these guys are good and they're they're hungry and they want to get better. But guys, we're gonna do a live uh, Q and A. I will repeat your questions so the audience listening can hear uh, this podcast. I think we'll drop it on Elk Shape, and if we go long, we'll go overdrive into the Elk Collective. So, does anyone want to start off with the most amazing question, my man, Matt? Okay, so his question is, what is the best at-home elevated heart rate uh, training shooting like program or just idea? Yeah, okay, so uh, we exposed these guys today to kind of uh, kind of what we did today is going to be my answer. But along the lines of, oh, look, you're never going to shoot probably at an elk with a heart rate of 80 beats per minute. Uh, you just – you're not like elk are too exciting you're too into it you will have worked your butt off to get there you're going to be under duress you're going to have fatigue you're going to probably have a bino harness on you're probably going to be have a sweaty backpack on and uh the elk's probably not going to be standing on a flat like your grass in the back of your yard super flat it's probably going to be undulated or a steep downhill or uphill shot there's going to be tree limbs, brush. I mean, it's just not really what people practice. And then they hope to do well out there. And uh, what we did today is we did 30 seconds of split lunges. When we dragged our hunting partner 30 meters, 30 yards, and then we said shoot one arrow without a backpack on. Most people did not hit the dot that we wanted them to hit. So we tried it again. And we asked you guys to do slow down your shot process, take a deep breath, really get your heart rate down a little bit. There was some improvement. Uh, but then we moved you up even closer. We had you do a little more duress fitness type stuff and then shoot from your knees at 20. And that was significant improvement. But all in all, I just think everybody here hasn't tried that. And so they hadn't calculated, okay, being out of breath, having a heart rate, makes me not as good at archery you need to figure out how you know what what that means how define that for yourself or at least get more reps at it um, so jason what are some suggestions that you have for people to as cliche as it sounds create some perfect practice scenarios so that they're ready for the elk woods in my opinion the, the mountain shoots you know they're becoming more popular the you got the you know well a lot of them were canceled since they were pretend c word COVID doesn't exist. Yep. Northwest um, Mountain Mount, Challenge. Northwest Mountain Challenge. You got the Mountain Archery Festival. You got TAC. You've got all these, you know, um, ski resort type shoots that are coming up. Um, the nice thing about that is you get tired between targets. You know, sometimes at Northwest Mountain Challenge, we'll hike 2,000 feet and shoot three dang arrows. Um, you know, so you, you get your heart rate up on that, and then they put you on a jacked up slope with, you know, one foot hanging on a rock, one foot, you know, three feet below you. You're just trying to hang on and touch the stake. Um, those sort of situations uh, let you know where you're lacking really, really quick. Um, as we mentioned earlier, we've did a lot of with third axis here. Um, you're going to find out really quick on a 90-yard, 45-degree shot just how dialed in your third axis is or where some of your flaws are at. Um, so it's it's kind of that combination of shooting and, and fitness and uh, you know, some of those mountain challenges, which you guys don't have a lot around here. Um, I know they had some train-to-hunt style events here, um, beast Beast mode, beast mode archery. Something. Or n there's there's some of those events that kind of test you a little bit more than shooting a target in your backyard and get you ready for, you know, trying to trying to shoot your bow, um, make it. But there, 
I don't mean to sound – you can do all the practice you can, but there's still nothing that quite replaces that first bowl. But you, you're trying to control all those variables for when it does come in. You're, you're still going to – you're, you're going to lose your nerves, and there's going to be some um, – you know, some of that that goes on. But you're going to do your best to try to control that through some of these situations that you can present yourself. Mm, that was good. I would say take-home-wise, we I don't recommend push-ups and burpees and then shooting. I don't want a lot of blood in your upper body. It's not it's not really a high degree of transferability to elk hunting. I do want your legs heavy. I want your heart rate high. I want you to work on your breathing and see what what that entails to get it down to where you're, you know, you're good at shooting. And then this other thing that we didn't do here – but I, we kind of did is we remember Friday night when you first got here and we said, hi, welcome to Elk Shape Camp. Grab an arrow and shoot. I would like you guys to go to your archery range and walk up. This I got this from Joel Turner, so I'm not, steal, I'm not stealing this. I'm giving him credit. But I would like you to walk up to a random stranger and ask them to come watch you shoot this target and hit the bullseye. That last part's key. You're going to grab. So I'm going to walk up to you, Matt, and I'm going to be like, hey, my name's Dan. Come on over here. Watch me drill the bullseye out of this bull elk at 60. Uh, that's creating a lot of butt pucker pressure for me, and I need reps at pressure. Do you know what I mean? And you're, if you're embarrassed or worried that you might not hit the target, who cares? Like, you're doing it to make yourself better. You are going to look like a jerk, so maybe tell the person afterwards, hey, I was just trying to create some pressure, and you helped me out. But um, I challenge all of you to do that. I'm not kidding. And, and it will get you – Reps at that kind of uncomfortable, high-pressure, high-stakes, or gamble with your buddy, whether you're gambling real money, which Snyder does all the time with yep. that other guy, and uh, or beer or whatever it is. you. But get some high-stakes, uh, but don't go bankrupt. We haven't talked about finances yet, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a little high-stakes, friendly competition, never hurt nobody. So we'll go in the back. We'll work our way up. Okay, so his question is basically, how do you figure out where to go elk hunting in a state and everybody here's in Wisconsin or Minnesota or North Dakota. So how do you choose a state out west? Now, we kind of covered that pretty much deep today on e-scouting. Kind of showed you we picked a random unit in Colorado and kind of dove in. And I'd be willing to guarantee what Jason drew up on that map today. Holds elk, solid plan. It's, only, it's less than a two-mile hike. Yeah, you gain 2,000 vert, but you're... It's a quick morning hunt. If it's not what you liked, you're back to the truck and you're gypsy. You're moving on to the next greener pasture. I really dug that. But I'm going to let you tackle that in the Cliff Notes version. Yeah, so, I, I mean, just the way the question was posed, we're kind of talking um, Oregon, Montana, or Colorado because everywhere else you're kind of locked into somewhere in the state. So those are the tags that kind of give you the ability to hunt the whole state, you, so you, you know, w with the exceptions of special units and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, you look at Montana, you're like, all right, there's a few that are special units. Where the heck do I go? Um, you look at Colorado, like all the over-the-counter. Um, it really – you first you have to kind of decide what type of hunt you're after. Like if you're wanting to go wilderness deep, then you, you know, you can, as we showed you earlier on Google earth, like turn on the wilderness layers and turn on some of your, your KMZ KML files and say, all right, this unit has good wilderness. This unit has good wilderness. So maybe you take five, you know, if that's the type of hunt you're after, you go look at the fish and wildlife numbers. So you kind of mentioned a long list of go hunt fish and wildlife biologists. Um, you know, some of the layers that you can turn on and, and base map, like you can see where the, the, the elk summer ranges are at and, and the concentrated summer ranges are at. So by going through all of these different, you, you'll start to put like 
check marks next to each one and and maybe that unit that has the most check marks when you're done with your little um you know you've vetted this unit maybe try that as your first and then you know see if there's any any big pitfalls that really bother you you know if it's access or hey there's only one access point to this whole unit everybody's got to go on the same trailhead there are some instances where um you know it's just not the type of hunt you're after or uh, maybe you're like my dad can't get around good. Um, you, you might want to pick a unit that has more road. So it's really what you're after and then start checking the boxes. Like, do I want a bivvied out spike hunt? If that's what I'm after, then this unit meets that. If not, if there's a road every mile on every ridge, then that one's out. Um, go check fish and game. Like, does it check? Is there a high percentage of kills? How many people are in this? I don't want a lot of people. That unit has the most in the state. That unit's out. Um, one thing about people though, is there's, if there weren't a lot of elk there, there wouldn't be people. So there's not always a, a bad correlation between people and, and elk. So you just got to kind of, nobody can really answer that for you. Um, it's more of what you're after, what you want to get out of that hunt. And then, you know, if you're after mature bulls, well, these units typically kill more six points. So these are, you know, so you just got to kind of go through whatever means the most to you on an elk hunt and then just kind of check all those boxes. Um, same with Oregon, um, same with Colorado um, you're, and, and Montana. You're just kind of looking at those units. Um, take everything with a grain of salt, but it's still the best data you can get. So the question was, if you're hunting for just cows and spikes specifically, are you still going to beagle? And absolutely um, I'm going to tell you why. It may not kill that that animal. It may not get that spiker cow into bow range for you. But let's think like an elk. Where are the cows and the spikes always at during September? They're always with that big bull that's going to beagle at you, right? So that's the very first thing you need before you ever go try to kill a cow or a spike is you need to know where that herd bull's at because that's where all the cows and spikes are at. Um, it's kind of nice that they make noise. Um, they kind of give their location away, and then you can go into your hunt after that. Maybe move in and get more to cow calls and whatnot, but you're definitely going to bugle um, on spike and, and cow-specific hunts. I've never hunted for spikes specifically. I have killed a couple spikes, but I've never – and like in Washington State and in Utah – those two states seem to have these spike-only cow hunts and pretty much limited entry type hunts. And like I think Jason hinted to this earlier, it's important in our opinion, and I think you would agree, to be very respectful of these people who burned a ton of points to finally hunt Utah or the Blues in Washington. And then they got these guys running around trying to kill a true spike or whatever. And then that, that's a whole other thing. It's true spike versus whatever. No, and I don't we're, wanna, yeah, we're not going down that rabbit hole. We're not going down hole. that rabbit hole. But I think I've seen a lot of spikes get kicked out of herds, and they kind of all come together as like, man, we're just one and a half years old, and we just got kicked out of the herd, yeah. and they kind of create their own little herd of spikes. So you might see that. It takes a little bit to develop, maybe a week in September, maybe two. As far as cows go and whatnot, I think you, Jason, hit out of the park. It's going to be just like locating a bull. And getting in on that in their bubble. So Colorado, it starts September second this year in Colorado. They moved it from the last Saturday to in August to now you're in September. But now you get all of September, right? But you have only eight days allocated. Okay, and you're hunting solo. All right, and you have um, you figured out a way to get some access through private to get to public. So that's going to be a huge advantage. And how much time have you been in the unit before anything? So you're going in blind. Imagine you've done some e-scouting. Okay. I don't know what you're going to expect. We know a couple things about Colorado. They have the highest elk density, right? We know that September 2nd, majority, if not all bulls, should have velvet off. We know that some bulls will have already rounded up cows, guaranteed. But we also know that some bulls are in their staging 
ready to get ready. They're like ready to get ready. Does that make sense? They're kind of that little pre-rut zone where they're they're feeling their oats. They're starting to bugle. They're thinking about going on a mission. Um, and then there's some other bulls that have, will let the younger bulls do all the work and gather the ladies up. And then they're going to, in one fell swoop, rob them of their cows. So it just depends on, you know, biology. And, and I, I don't think you can control that. But I personally, I hate to talk about this publicly, I really enjoy hunting early as possible as far as beginning of September. I think it's your best chance to shoot a mature bull. It's pretty tough to trick a, a really wise old herd bull when he's all cowed up. He's got a pretty good program. He's got a lot of defenses. His walls are up. Um, I would say you potentially could call in a giant with just a cow call. But what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you kind of hit it the nail on the head there. But uh, I always feel like there's a hierarchy of like less intimidating sounds up to more intimidating sounds. And and I've, I'm pretty prescriptive. I'll still location bugle. I'll still do some things. But when I go in to call a bull in, I would potentially start with just cow calls. How does he react? Well, that didn't work so good. Uh, or it did work. Um, well, next time I'm going to maybe try to – I don't need to go right to the biggest bull. Maybe I'll just do like a little squeal or a little growl or something different. And how does he react to that? And then potentially like, all right, these things are – if those elk like over this hunt, you start to crank up. They start to bugle more in the morning, start to bugle later into the morning. Like, all right, things are starting to turn on. Then you can kind of match their intensity. So you're kind of always trying to match like, are these things bugling on their own? Are they answering my bugles? Or do I know there's elk here and they're not answering my bugles and maybe I should go to cow calls? Um, you're going to need to be a little bit more patient. Um, you're going to have to set up a lot longer because those bulls that aren't coming in running ready to fight are typically coming in slower, a little bit more um, anxious, a little bit more nervous. But, yeah, I, I would just kind of scale that up. Start low, you know, cow calls, you know, some excited cow calls, lighter, you know, smaller bugles. I always talk about never bugling small, but this is that one instance early where maybe I'm just going to slowly turn the temperature up and see what they finally respond to. Um, but, yeah, I would still locate bugle full bore on, on September 2nd. Like, you might not get as many responses as you would September 15th or 20th, but you should start to get responses in that area um, that early. Is it glass-friendly in this country? Yeah. That could, you could also set up September 2nd, do some night bugling or whatever, but be in a good vantage for your first morning to just almost pull your whitetail observation stand and just get eyes on the country and see what, you know, there's timberline and things like that in Colorado. Maybe you just get a visual and kind of like you guys did in that video that we broke down where you guys just kind of observed those two bulls you kind of did and then you ended up killing in there yep. so start out on the fringe move in when you're ready cool what else we got okay so the question's kind of referring to how do you set up a camp without blowing out elk like getting too close right okay it's tough that's actually hard to answer go ahead it is um not that i'm lazy but at the same time i don't want to put a whole bunch of effort in in the morning but i also it's a balance of effort in the morning, easy access, but then also doing whatever I need to to make sure with 100%, um, you know, 100% accuracy that I'm not going to screw those elk up. So knowing thermals at night when it gets cold that they're going to go downhill, I'm going to try to find a spot to camp down below where I think those elk are or where they're going to move. Um, we'll even pull our phones out um, in that instance and say, all right, on base map, there's a saddle here. Those elk could potentially come down the saddle. Now we need to go another half mile down the ridge. Um, it might be a little more effort, but I'm, I want to stay as close to them as possible, but I don't want to risk, uh, you know, one iota of them um, potentially winding us or, or scattering. So um, 
camp spots are tough. Um, you know, do you need to go get water or do you have enough water to live where you're at? Some of that stuff all comes into play, but I like to be at least a half mile away from where I think those elk are going to be, um, or be all night and, and not be within a half mile of them and then find them again in the morning. Are you doing a spike or a bivy? Are you hunting out of your backpack? Yeah. Yeah. So you'll camp wherever you're done out of daylight. Yeah, so I don't really like to do that style for elk hunting. I have never really had that because then my pack's guaranteed to be 50 pounds because I do pack DSLR cameras and lenses. If I didn't pack that, I could probably bivy around 45 pounds, but that's still not as much food. I like to eat a lot. I'm not, I'm fit, but I'm not as fit when I have 50 plus pounds on my back. So I like to be mobile. I rely on speed. I'd much rather set up a Drop a spike camp bag, like Kofaru's got their camp bag. Drop it off at a spot where I could hit two to three drainages or basins from that spike camp. And that spike camp has water. And I drop the bag. I don't even set camp. I go out. I do my thing. I hunt. I locate. I come back to spike, my you know, and get my water ready, get my camp set up in the dark. Or I grab my camp bag, put it in my backpack, and I hike back down to the truck. I'm out of here. I'm not wasting a day the next day here. Speed, speed, mobility, I'll take that over the uh, allure of backpack bivy hunting. And there's places where it's probably better to do bivy hunting. So you in Colorado specifically, Dirk has referenced his born and raised hunt where they, they did do that. And they, they hunted out of, off their backpacks. Yep. And, and it was way more convenient to just drop wherever they were at. And those elk there were kind of doing circuits. They were just kind of doing these big, long circuits, loops. They weren't predictably in pockets day after day. But I will say this, when Dirk made it back to the truck to reload food and switch partners, this is on Born and Raised 2.0, they called in a bull and Dirk shot it 500 yards from the truck. So they had just got back from 13 miles away from the truck, and then you're telling me Dirk just shot one 500 yards from the truck? Maybe they went past a lot of elk. So I I don't know. I know I know Snyder's take on it. I don't know what your take is, but I'm not a huge bevy elk hunter. I'd rather be more of a spike camp elk hunter. I loved the bevy hunt. I was on that same hunt with Dirk. Um, oh yeah, it, it's an, it's an awesome way to hunt. I I like it, but yeah, it just depends on the area you're hunting. Um, where the elk are at, how how far the people are in, um, you know, how many elk you have to hunt, and it, it just worked on that hunt. We've did it a couple times since, but yeah, it just really depends on whether we're we're staying at the trailhead in a in a canvas cutter or in the back of our truck, or we're staying, you know, at a, at a dedicated spike camp or whether we're bivying. So um, yeah, they, they all have their place. Just depends on the unit and where you're at. The the thing about that Colorado unit is the thing it was so draining to walk through even four miles of of beetle kill that it would just completely destroy you walking back out four miles just to sleep and walk back in four miles. Um, so it was best just to stay on the other side of the, the, the blowdown and, and, and not have to fight it every day. Yeah. So the question is, is kind of like, what's your why? Um, and he kind of defines his question with, like, he understands that elk hunting is unique in that to do it justice, it takes a 365 335 year round approach because hopefully for 30 days you're okay but was that his question yeah and then how do you justify your commitment you know financially and some of these other things kind of come in great question i'll tell you that i personally have lost interest in other things that i used to have interest in i've had to sacrifice shed hunting 
I have two little kids and a wife. I don't get to shed hunt like I used to because I elk hunt so much. So something's got to give. Um, my bear hunting's de- back down quite a bit. Um, I used to bear hunt for weeks in a row. Now it's kind of just a day here, a day there um, because I love elk hunting so much. So I just prioritize my life around elk hunting because it is my number one passion next to faith and family is just bulls bugling and being out there in September. And so other things have gone. Relationships, I don't have a lot of friends or best friends as I used to before I got into elk hunting. Very limited on everything because of elk hunting, and it's that important to me. Um, Why is it so important to me? I don't know, man. It's the only thing I've found out there that keeps me motivated, that keeps me hungry, that keeps me out of trouble. When I was 21, I got a DUI. I was like trying to pick up girls and hang out with the wrong crowd, and elk hunting kind of got me on a new new path. Um, I stopped partying, and I really started going to bed super early on Friday night because I had to go scout for something. You know what I mean? So elk hunting is really a great way to connect with your friends, your family, keep you out of trouble. I think it's wholesome, and it's kind of nice that you get organic meat out of it. It's kind of nice that you should be kind of fit and kind of a good archer. It's got all these prerequisites that make me tick. So who are you? Yeah, so you know, he, he had mentioned. I think we may not have repeated, but you know, aside from being in the industry, there's some obvious reasons why I love elk hunting so much. But take away You're Phelps' in the game, well, whatever you want to call it. Take oh. away Phelps' game calls and some of my interests in in elk hunting. The yeah. reasons I do it, there's probably two. Um, you know, aside from, um, I don't I don't waterfowl hunt. I don't do I don't go to the bar every Friday and Saturday like some of my old friends. You know, my friends still friends, but that's what we used to do and do some of this stuff. Number one is like a major reset in my life. Like you, everything is so crazy. Whether I you know dealt with elk hunting or dealt with the engineering side or dealt with just my busy life. Like it's that ability to you know when something goes haywire, your computer goes haywire, you can go over and kind of hit that reset button. Um, I love nothing more than being up in the mountains. Um, and uh, you know, seeing seeing some some of the amazing country that most people don't ever get a set foot in, they don't go to the crazy place. You know, they can all walk a manicured trail, but they don't get to go to some of these high hanging or high hanging basins. They don't get to see some of the stuff. They don't get to experience the elk rut like we do. Like, there's nothing that for me, um, I don't want to say there's nothing that replaces, but it's a different. When that bull's bugling in my face, and I've kind of you know, God complex got to kind of play nature. Like I put that puppet on a string and was able to control something that had no idea that I was really an elk and, and kind of put it into my lap. Like that's, that's a, a huge bonus for me. And I get to kind of play that. Like, you know, I've, I've tricked nature at that point and it's that big reset. And the number two, um, I'm in a competition with nobody but myself, but I, I grew up very, very competitive in all sports, football, basketball, baseball, and it's a way to continue to challenge myself now that sports are gone a little bit. Um, and it's a, like I said, it's a challenge against nobody but myself, but can I go out there? Can I get to these areas? Can I go out there and set a goal and accomplish it, or do I, need, do I fall short a little bit? And it's kind of that constant measuring stick. I can, you know, man, I fell a little bit short. Do I need to get better next year? Did I, you know, did, and it's, it's more of that competition with myself and nobody else, but um, I challenge myself every year to go to new places, see new places, and, uh, you know, push myself as hard as I can, you know, while I'm out there. Yeah, so he's asking about hunting a sim basin day after day after day because you know that there's elk in there and that they're holding into that country. Um, I'll tell you this, the first time that you go in there is going to be, I think, your best percentage of actually getting a shot opportunity. And I think you can go back in there, but it could get knocked down a few points every time you go back in. They're a little bit messed with. You left scent in there, um, things like that. So I've always historically as I evolved in, in my learning curve, 
I figured out what worked for me was to be more bounce around and get that high percentage play every day in a new drainage. But you don't always know. Maybe you find out and you don't know if someone was messing with them the day before and you got in there. You don't know. But I sure like uh, to come back in a few days, let it cool or whatever, and I feel like that's worked well. But I've also pounded the crap out of areas before and, and it had it work, but not as much. Does that make sense? So I do like the idea of getting in and closing the deal. And if you don't, come back in a few days or whatever. Let it, you know, put it on ice. Um, plus it also forces me to learn new areas. Because I think a lot of people get excited about like they got two or three basins. They know them and then they get comfortable. Um, and if you hunt Idaho... You're one wolf pack away from your hunting holes being crushed. And I've experienced that. So uh, adventure out a little bit. Make sure you're expanding your knowledge as well. I think that'll pay off for your long term because you're a pretty young guy. You got at least, you know, you're halfway through your elk hunting career. You Hopefully you are maybe more than that. Like you have many more years. So what's your take? I'm interested to hear yours. Yeah, it, it really depends on that first time I went in, how many elk I seen. If it was one single herd and you maybe boogered them up a little bit, um, I'm probably not going to go back right away um, unless it's a bull that I really want to kill or something that I'm really after. Now, if you go in there and see three or four different herds of elk and you know that they're it's more packed and if I screw up the first one when I come back in, I can go that second or third, then I'm more apt to probably keep going back in there sooner than later. And we've did this a lot in my Idaho spot where you kind of it's kind of almost the, the game of attrition. Like, you go in, now there's three herds, and then you go back in, now there's like two herds you can find. You're like, all right, now we need to let this cool down. Um, so it's really kind of depends on the action and the amount of elk versus, you know, one herd I'm probably going to skip out and come back if I can't find anything better. Four herds is probably worth going back in that next day just because there's so many uh, opportunities in there. So the question's on wearing glasses or contacts, uh, right? Yeah. And which would you wear if you're hunting out of a spike camp? Yeah. Oh, man. I hunted with a photographer last year that had contacts. It's kind of a handicap for him because we were at a spike camp, um, and I don't think that worked out well for him. But what do you shoot with would be probably what you need to do. Whatever you've practiced with most of the year, probably contacts in, then you're going to have to figure that out. Yeah. But I don't I don't have any glasses or contacts. I know Tyson, when we hunt backcountry, just What's brings a couple packs of disposables and just runs contacts. Yeah. Is that what you're wearing right now? No, I don't wear them literally other than when I'm Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay, so your classic scouting question, like, is it worth it to scout and get your scent into these areas three or four days before the season, or should you treat it similar to like the hunting tactic we just described where your first time in there is your best time, things like that, so... Uh, we talked about this on Snyder's podcast a little bit, um, so I'll get. I kind of know what I would do, but yeah, what do you think about scouting three or four yeah. days before so sc- and all scouting, that? Scouting, uh, I'm I'm probably gonna get out of there, especially if it's close contact scouting, like you were in the basin with them to find them. I'm gonna get out. Is there any way I can get like advantage on a ridge across and look into there? Can I keep tabs on them some other way um, without being in there? But I'm not gonna go back in there and set the place up. I'm gonna assume. I'm going to maybe monitor traffic or, or ways in to see who else may be in there, but I'm probably going to leave those elk alone until opening day. Um, maybe head in the night before if it's, if it's a hike in there. Um, if it's a morning hike, I'll just get up early and try to be the first one on the trail and the first one to that area. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm not a big believer in you have to you know, necessarily babysit those elk. Um, there's too much stuff that can go wrong by being in or close to them. 
I know that I'm going to go scout about one day before the opener um, for Idaho this year, and I know that it's a new unit to me. Um, so when I get down there, I'm going to probably try to scoop up a few cameras. These cameras won't be in basins. These will be more like ridgeline cameras that I'm just trying to catch elk moving through. I got no problem with that, but it'll be primarily a glass session from afar, and I probably won't get there until the afternoon or evening, so, you know, which side of the mountain I'll be looking on, where it's getting shade first, you know, the east sides, glassing into those, and that'll be it. And then from there, once it gets dark, I might start ripping bugles. Even though it's not seasoned until the morning, I might start ripping bugles to see who's out there, who wants to talk. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So the question was, um, coming out from the Midwest, coming out west to hunt, um, based on a budget, like what are some of your gear recommendations or what would you do different than maybe you would here in the Midwest? Uh, is that correct? Yeah, just like, you know, uh, maybe a backpack, better investment than, you know, uh, jacket. Yep. Okay, so like what's the hierarchy of investment then? Like what would oh, you concentrate you on first? There you go. Um, number one, and there's no replacement for it, is absolutely boots. Everything uh, Dan's talked about shooting off of your legs, your feet will lead you everywhere on a western hunt and if your feet fall apart or get blistered on day one you're in for a um hellacious hunt no matter how good your backpack fits no matter how good warm your sleeping bag is no matter how waterproof your tent is you're going to be a miserable um one thing i will say is everybody that goes out west um from the midwest should buy some look on amazon it's called luco tape type p everybody whether even the people out west like i'm saying that is coming from the midwest you should definitely have some in your pack but um, coming from the Midwest, if you can't train on super steep, steep mountains and get your feet in shape, you're going to probably run into blisters as soon as you start to stand on your tippy toes to climb out of a hole. And at the very first second, you feel your foot start to get hot anywhere. No matter how much you want to push through it, no matter how much you want to keep going, stop, take your boot off and, and cover that sucker in Luco tape and leave it there until the end of the hunt. Um, so Luco tape, L-E-U-K-O tape. Um, it, it will save your life. I had to use some on my bear hunt, tried a new pair of boots out, wasn't quite ready for the mountains. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was leukotaping, I was moleskinning, I was leukotaping, just adding layers on top of layers, um, just to keep your feet protected. Otherwise it's going to turn into a miserable hunt. So boots are number one. I don't, I'll leave bows out of it since we're all, we're all getting dialed in on our bows. Um, next is probably your pack. Um, make sure you have a good pack. You're comfortable. Load that thing up. Know how to load that thing up with a hundred pounds. I mean, elk aren't light and that's multiple trips. Know how to situate your pack. Know how to put that meat against the back of, you know, as close to your back as possible. Um, make sure that you can get that thing adjusted to carry that because there's some times where no matter where you hunt, you might hit a bull bad and you might end up packing that thing out five miles when your intention was only one mile. Um, you might have a lot of weight on your back, um, a lot more weight than you're used to. So just whatever pack it may be, um, make sure you're dialed in and that you can comfortably carry some heavy, heavy weight or at least get it to a trailhead and let the horses or whatever it may be carried out. So pack's number two. And then I kind of go to your, your hunting gear is, is probably number three. There's a lot of stuff that gets it done. Um, I like to, to feel like I'm hunting in pajamas. I like everything to stretch and move. Um, you know, I love hunting in wool. 
So that's something I look for is like a stretchy pant, like a wool upper. Um, I will wear nothing but a wool top and, and some sort of, of stretch pants. I personally use First Light. I know Dan uses Sitka. It's whatever you're comfortable with, whatever fits. Um, but I'll wear a First Light like quarter zip top so I can control some heat that way. And unless it's cold in the morning, I throw like a, a fleece or a potential puffy on top. But my system is completely... I can run all of September with one pair of pants, no long johns. I hardly have any need, even if it's cold. Um, boots, wool socks, and then my upper system is just uh, a thin wool, uh, gridded fleece, and a puffy, and then some rain gear. And that's what I can make it through any September with just those few pieces of gear. Hmm. I like that he said boots. I can't argue there. Everything starts from the ground up. And we were talking about staying off your knees when it comes to shooting elk. Jason and I both believe stay standing. For a backpack thing, I think that was really good advice on loading it up. Are, is anybody out here got a new pack to them? They're new. You haven't. It's not broken yet. You haven't packed elk meat on it or something heavy. Yeah, you might want to go. There's good blogs out there, or Jason could rattle off a couple ideas. But like, know how to pack your pack. Like the heavier items go here, closer to your spine. Some of the bulkier items that take up volume go down or up. Like mess with packing your. I got. Uh, I switched to Kafaro this year. I haven't really used them yet. But I've already packed and unloaded my striker bag, camp bag twice, and I take all that and put it in my cutthroat twice just because I don't want to squander time on the mountain dicking around with gear. Like I already want – I want to be hunting. Same thing with um, – for me hunting this year with besides layering systems and stuff with Sika, I like to know like glass. I like to have my glass figured out. Um, bino harnesses, I've, I'm still trying to find – the one i'm um, still looking what's that one that's uh out of colorado marsupia marsupio marsupial that's the only one i haven't tried but i've looked at it and i might be trying that one but i've tried like i sick new one i've got um adac um alaska guide creations uh, fhf um all that stuff like all the tinkering needs to happen before the season like you need to be a professional tinkerer and it's gotta like pass inspection so if you don't inspect what you expect, the mountain's not the place to do that. So I would yeah, be that, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, even to add on top of that, like if you're if you guys don't typically use freeze, you know, freeze meal or freeze dried meals, like test those things out before you head out in the mountains. They will t some of they will, will just tear you up bad. <laughs> and the mountain's not the place to get tore up. I mean, there's there's stuff like that, food, um, you know, a lot of we used to do cliff bars and I can't even stomach any flavor of cliff bars. So there's stuff that's going to it's these little mental um, boosts, but if you're trying to stomach stuff you don't want to eat, if there's foods, if you don't have your, you know, dialed in, like try all that stuff a little bit before you take off just so you don't get up in the mountains and like, oh man, I don't get along with yeah. Chili Mac, you know, on the mountains oh. are wrong. Um, the other thing I forgot that's very important that I kind of overlook because it's just always there is coming out from the Midwest, you know, the mountains are big, they're dangerous, they, there's stuff that can happen, there's exposure that you guys aren't exposed to here. Um, and inReach is a great tool to always have. It's kind of that peace of mind. My wife can track me. I can get a hold. As I, I showed some of you guys the, uh, the Idaho bull that Tyson killed in 2018, and I mentioned I had to leave him uh, a little bit. He was weighted down. He had the heaviest pack, and I kind of ran out to get to the trailhead because we, we had had to come off the mountain a completely different way, and we were about 15 miles from our truck. What would we have did if I didn't get down there and there were two guys down there that were willing to give us a ride to our truck? We could not have walked that 15 miles and not ran into anybody. It was just not feasible after the pack out. I could have inreached our buddies, Ryan, 
Ryan Lampers, Matt Davis, and those guys would have bombed around and got us. So we still had a way to communicate. Otherwise, without that inReach, there's no cell service. There's no way to meet anybody. So not only logistics to keep your wife's peace of mind, you know, somebody's peace of mind being able to contact, but I mean, it can really kind of, you know, change the hunt and what you're able to do. Without that inReach, we probably would have made the decision to, oh, we got to climb 2,000 feet out of this basin and go towards the truck because I'm not willing to risk that there's somebody going to be at the trailhead. Um, so inReaches are huge. You can buy one up front and then just pay for like one month um, of service, September, and then shut it off after that. And go like unlimited service. And then you just text from your phone. You, it's a Bluetooth deal where you Bluetooth, you pair it, and then you're just like a normal text, sending, receiving, what have you. Be, we're talking about gear, and I kind of get panicked. Some of you are at this elk shape camp, and you're not going elk hunting this fall. You're, you're already planning a year in advance, and you're missing out on a September which is, I know for you guys, tolerable, but for me, it's really hard to understand that because it's so finite. You're going to miss like 500 bugles you could have heard. So we kind of, my point being, we're getting to this like buy once, cry once, get good gear, but get tags, get reps, get time in the mountains, which is more obviously, I'm more concerned that you get tags and get time in the mountain, even if you're just the caller, right? Or even if you're just going to get a cow-only tag, go hunt a pre- you know those premium units and hear the bugles and get exposed to the animal behavior, the biology, the yep. vocalization. So I that's why I don't get pumped about gear because I don't want to lose sight. And where do you stand on that kind of like? Yeah, that analogy gear? of like you throw a bunch of. Uh and I wear first sight, so this isn't a dig at first sight. If say you have a pile of of mossy oak cotton sweatpants but three tags over here or over here you have the pile of the newest first light sitka gear qu packs and there's one tag for every third year i'm going to take these cotton pants and these you know whatever timberland boots or whatever you've got over here that's just not the stuff meant to hunt the mountains i'm going to take those three tags every day over this pile of gear over here and that's no diss on a company that helps support everything we do but that is how serious i am about those tags are more important than having the newest nicest bow or the newest nicest gear um, I'll take those tags and, and the opportunity every day over over the best and latest gear. Yeah, the question is probably for Jason, and it's like about manipulating the sound and the pitch and the angles through the bugle tube. So throwing calls behind you, like he said, he saw that on a video. Wanted to have you talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So you know why you cow call through a tube? Why you direct? So um, if it's done in the essence of calling a bull in. We'll sometimes angle our tube in directions because we need to almost use it as a steering wheel. Maybe we didn't set up right. Maybe we don't have the wind just perfect. And that bull's just not cooperating or wanting to go the way we need him. We'll potentially throw it behind us um, or to the side that we want him to go to to kind of change his direction. Like, hey, the cow's not sitting right here anymore. The cow's now down there. Um, it doesn't work great. These elk are pretty dang smart. They know exactly where you're at within about a five-foot circle from 500 yards away. So I don't get that whole idea. Now, what the reason I do sometimes call through a tube is we actually talked about this today. Some of these large herds, when you get these large Wyoming, Montana herds and just elk in general, like we always think that these diaphragms are our perfect cow call. Yeah. And then you start to hear these herds of cows. You're like, I can't make that sound with that. And you're like, I got to call through a tube, buzz my lips and be really whiny to sound like the, the real cows. And if I'm trying to compete with those, like, all right, I got to grab my tube. I've got to do all of these things to sound like the real thing to try to compete. Um, you'll get out there and you'll, that's why I say, don't try to call like me. Don't try to call like Dirk or whoever you may hear that sounds good. Because when we get out in the woods, we're always kind of like, hmm, that's not what they sound like today. No matter how good I can call, 
it's not what the real elk sound like in that area. So we're just going to, we're trying to use that tube to match it. We're trying to, um, so that's more, and then it does project the sound a little bit better. So there are times where like, I smell elk, like we're, we're really close. Maybe I don't want to rip a bugle off so that if that bull's 200 yards away, I don't want him to run down the drainage and try to get away from me. Let me, let me start off with a cow call or maybe a long distance cow call. So I'll cow call through my tube to project that out. And I'm almost using that like a locator cow call. Um, so we'll use that tube in, in those instances. So the question is, um, what kind of kit, what kind of tools do you carry in your vehicle to help mitigate issues that happen in the mountains? And I'll tell you what, I've hunted with some guys or shared camp with guys that uh, were not prepared. And it blows my mind. I feel like a um, little chauvinistic, but if you are a man or woman, but you should have gear in your truck. So if you were to go in the back of my Tacoma right now, you would find a complete set of tools like an entire like I've bought a tool bag filled with all the tools that you would need for just about anything from wrenching to fixing something rope jumper cables spare battery charger spare tire I just Murphy's law has ruined my life right like anything that can go wrong will go wrong and I haven't had a lot of bad luck like on wood with flat tires but it can really waste a lot of your precious elk hunting time so when it comes to tools and equipment, and I think your bow is also another tool, that's why I asked how many of you have a backup bow, because you're traveling great distances. Time is so finite. You're, you're burning so much time just to get there. You're probably going with the partner. Now you got to split your time if you're a good person. You know, you can't afford to drive three, four hours to the nearest pro shop and expect that they're going to work on your bow. You know what I mean? There's some things you can't control on vehicles like, you know, belts could go out. Things can go wrong where you got to get a tow or something or you got to yeah. limp back into town. And I understand that. Uh, but it's limp back to town. Here's my keys. Get it fixed. I'm renting a truck. I'm going back. September's a long ways away. Um, but that's I, that's the basics. I mean, maybe you carry something different, but just a lot of different tools. I definitely don't show up unprepared. I'm the guy that you're just making fun of. Cause oh I have, my God, I have a spare tire and I've got an in reach in reach fixes all of my problems on my truck. Hey, Hey honey. Um, I'm on this road about this spot. Like go ahead and call the local tow truck and see, let me know when you can get here. And I'm gonna leave this thing parked right here until they show up. Have this you done that? I, this is what I think. No. Oh, okay. I've been lucky. I've never okay. had any. I did this year. Wyoming deer hunting had to limp my truck back into town. Lost all my master cylinder. Lost all brakes and all power steering. Um, we were able to limp it back down to town and just had to get it fixed. But that that'd be something you couldn't fix on your own without parts. For sure. Anyways, so for sure. No, I'm knocking on wood. I haven't had to really deal with a tire like dirt bikes. Yeah, four wheelers. Yeah, I've had flat tires on all those. But for trucks and stuff. Yeah, he's asking like backcountry uh, first, first aid, aid. and uh, we actually did a backcountry first aid at one of our elk shape camps, which was really cool. It was uh, stop the bleed certification. We got everybody and uh, Patrick Barber helped out with that, and it was pretty cool. At that one, we had a paramedic attendee. We had an EMT as well. Um, I'm still an EMT, but not for like much longer. Mine's about to expire, and so. Yeah, it's very interesting to hear everybody's take. I think the inReach is the most important piece in my pack, um, for sure. As far as uh, do I have a tourniquet in my pack right now, I do not. I could do one with my belt if I need be. I don't have Sam Splint. Um, I just have, like, the basic stuff. Um, 
I do have clot. I can I could some clot stopper. I could probably I do have that, and it's not expired till next summer. Uh, Neosporin, Tylenol PMs, Advils, your lots of gauze, stuff that doesn't weigh much, and the in the inReach, for the most part. The EpiPen thing, dude. I can anyone listening. I want an EpiPen, and I don't want to spend five hundred dollars on it. You know what I mean? Okay, so I'll talk to you afterwards. But, yeah, I think an EpiPen, I've had allergic reaction one time to bees, and that was like t- 20 years ago. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that is always a concern of mine is the EpiPen deal. I'd like to kind of have one of those in my pack, and that's kind of what I'm – that's my chink in my armor. How about you? So my first aid kit, I, I heard this a long time ago. There's not a lot I can do. So I carry like two oxycodone for pain relief if somebody got hurt bad. Um, we've got some um, tape. We've got a heat blanket, and I've got some ibuprofen and some Benadryl. And that's all I can really fix aside from – that's all my skill allows me to fix anyways, and some quick clot. You know, if you get cut bad, potentially get that to clot up. And that's all That's all I can really do besides keep myself or somebody else comfortable and either one of us hike out. Now at the inReach, we could at least stay with the guy. We can hit the life flight button and, and hang out with them, make sure that they're okay, whether it's me or somebody else. But like I said, that's all I'm really comfortable for. We talked to a few paramedics on my bear hunt. Um about a month ago because, and they said, yeah, you should, everybody should have two EpiPens on them at all times because the first one goes and you need to, you need to shoot yourself about 30 minutes later again, if you've truly had an allergic reaction, because the first one won't cut it. Yeah. Um, so it's something I've, I definitely want to look into, you know, they, they're able to draw it out of a vial, which is something we can't get, but I would like to at least have like two click pins, um, and just have them on me. But like you said, you're going to pay six, 700 bucks for, for them, especially, and you got to get a doctor to somehow prescribe it, uh, prescribe them to you. So, yeah. It's one of those things where, yeah, whatever, if you eat something you're not supposed to or, you know, a bee stings you, whatever it might be, snake bites. I hate, you know, I don't even know how all that works. I don't even know if they work on a snake bite, but, uh, you know, just anything to. There's no snakes when you're elk hunting. They're everywhere. Yeah, so he uh, he went, uh, he's from North Dakota over, would you say Memorial Weekend? He went over to Idaho and he was like, yeah, I think you had a bear tag, but you were kind of looking for your, your elk scouting because you have a tag there. Yeah. And you like, oh, I know, I'll throw 30 pounds on while I'm over here scouting and get a good workout. And then he pulled his hip flexor or his TFL, his tensor fascia lata, like that side one, right? And is it still tight? It, no, it's better. It's better now. Okay. I actually, I actually, TFL, mine's a little tight from running with that guy yesterday. I don't run. I don't like running, but I did it. And, um. Those demands, my body wasn't used to it. So, yeah, get exposed to hiking with a pack on. Get get used to putting weight on and do it progressively, overload it over time. You know, so whatever your day pack weight's going to be, maybe it's 25 or 35. I like a light pack. I like to stay light and nimble, um, 25, 30 pounds tops, and just be fast. Speed kills, in my opinion. But get used to that. You know, don't just show up. Don't shave the weight off of your toothbrush and like buy all this expensive, super light equipment and you have a beer gut. To me, that's just like Easy. makes no sense. You have, I'm not talking about you. Oh, oh, gotcha. You look great. But if you need to shave weight, try on your stomach, your waistline for guys. You know what I mean? And that just comes down to what you eat, unfortunately, and how much you exercise, but mostly how much you're eating. So, but for you, yeah, if you're kind of. If you're stuck at a desk a lot, I think you should set an alarm on your phone to get up and open up your hip flexors right away. We'll show you some lengthening strategies tomorrow. You'll probably already know those. So honestly, I've worked with you before. But don't get stuck in a chair all day. Like definitely get up and move around. Get an alarm on your phone. Keep everything lengthened and strengthened. And uh, progressively overload your backpack training 
Fortunately, we all have time to start doing that. And so if you are showing up to September overweight and you haven't really worn a backpack, I don't think you'll be able to hunt your best. You really can't argue that. It's just, it's the truth. So, um, and then also you flatlanders, if you're going to Colorado, man, get there early, acclimate slowly, show up hydrated. I still get altitude sickness every stinking time I hunt at 10,000 or higher. Always. But it just sucks. So just, it takes a couple days. So maybe hunt the front country the first couple days or get there a few days and just glass and deal with the dull headache, drink your water, and when it all clears in a couple days, then go if you can. So something to think about. Such a good question. Jason, you get to answer that. You want to repeat it or you want me to Yeah, repeat I'll it? repeat it. So he's got a great point. How do you shoot your weapon while you're hunting all the time, especially when you're out of state? How do you keep your scale up uh, since everything hinges upon a really good shot? So the best way to do it is that um, stump shoot along the hunt. I, it's not how I do it, but a lot of people will just put a judo point on, or or a, you know a blunt point and, and shoot it random things along the along the trail. I typically, if I show back up to camp, I'll shoot the arrow, you know, a arrow, one single, my best arrow into the target, make sure we're on, and then we'll keep going. Um, if we're on a long baby hunt, you've just you can't, in my opinion, confidence is everything. And I'll never second guess or never even question if my, you know, yeah, we took a big bump, but now is my bow still on? I just, you've got to assume that everything's still lined up. And that's where it comes back to Dan Silver Sharpie. Like, is everything still in line? Like, all of my, is everything tweaked is, or is anything tweaked or is everything still where it's at? Um, you can stump shoot. You can shoot when you get back. But really, I hope by repetition when you get there that you've shot enough that you, you're hopefully your skill won't go away, you know, on that seven to 10 day hunt. But every time I get a chance at the truck, I'll definitely shoot a few arrows just to make sure I'm still doing everything right. That's a really good point. So in, in Idaho, and I talk about Idaho a lot, but I've hunted all the states, all of them, except for, well, that's not true. I haven't hunted elk in Utah yet, but I'm only waiting for that limited entry tag. I'm not going to get OTC in Utah. It's just a pretty early season. I think they open mid-August. Yeah. No, thank you. But anyways, I've hunted all the states. So the one state that's always kind of got me, and I think this might happen in Roosevelt country too. I compare Roosevelt to North Idaho. I could be completely out of line. Correct me if I'm wrong. But, dude, there's my my dirt bike is crazy awesome, but my, I put my bow on my backpack. I ride my dirt bike. I go through alders. I go through steep ruts, all that kind of stuff. And then I got my bow. I'm fighting brush. We learned a long time ago that once the sun sets and you make it back to camp, whether that's a bivy camp, a spike camp, your truck camp, your house, whatever, turn the headlights on in your truck and at least shoot one broadhead at a broadhead target at 20. I can't tell you how many times riding a dirt bike or pounding brush, I did something to arrest or I moved my side off. And if I hadn't shot, it would have cost me an opportunity. So there are places like that where I'll actually shoot every day, one arrow, and sometimes it turns into several because something's off because I bumped it. Um, if I hunt more open country, I'm not too concerned. I, I really don't like putting my bow on my backpack. I will say that. Like, I will try to avoid that. Sometimes you can if you're on an ATV or a dirt bike or an e-bike. That kind of thing, not a big deal to me. But if you're going to put your bow on a backpack, you, you need to think, figure out how you're going to be shooting that bow. Does that make sense? So, yeah. Yep. We're almost at an hour, so anybody else got any last minute? This is your camp, your questions. First time elk hunter? Have you killed stuff before with a bow? You got reps in the red zone? That's always good. I commend you for starting. You know, you know you're not a young young buck, so to speak, but 
you are far from dead. You got a lot of elk seasons left. So I'm very excited for you. So the learning curve, still a thing, even with all the elk shape camps, all the podcasts, all the elk collective courses, all the information out there. There's still a learning curve. There's no magic to it. Like you, I, Jason will still, I guarantee. Phelps right over here makes a mistake he's made before in the past and he'll be like, God dang it. What was I doing? Like I know better. So that's the thing. It's called bow hunting. There's failure. That's why we like it. It's hard. we like to do hard things. So uh, for a newbie, try to mitigate all those like low hanging, obvious mistakes through your research, find an area to hunt where there's a lot of elk, where there's like, you're going to hear elk. You're going to get exposure to what elk are doing. Where is that? Well, Colorado's got 270,000 elk, so there's got to be some elk in there. So hunt somewhere where you will be able to hear elk, see elk, be a part of the elk deal. Does that make sense? And if you if you miss the boat, then go to Estes Park, not hunt, but go there and go experience what elk are doing and start learning in person, you know what I mean, as far as what elk are doing. This is a really complex question. I mean, it's like, I, I don't want to screw this up, Jason, but I really want to give him good advice. Like this whole camp kind of hinged upon that question. Like it didn't matter if you were fit. It didn't matter if you could call elk. If your bow's not set up and bulletproof, we started with that. And then we showed you guys sh shooting under pressure, shooting under duress, making sure you have the right equipment, the right arrow selection, the right broadhead. We went through all that. So that was what, a new hunter should know. We covered that. Then we went into elk biology. There are elk books out there. There are things that you can read to understand why elk do what they do, what makes them tick. That's in your control. Read as much as you can about animals and do your research. Um, then we worked on vocalizations today. Like you have a truck, put your bugle tube in your diaphragm. You're not married. You don't have a wife that you're going to annoy the crap out of with your practicing so you got to get to practicing on your elk vocalizations you can control that and then tomorrow we're going to work on your nutrition and your fitness so i'm distilling it down to mike you need to control what you can control and i just gave you a laundry list of things that you can control to get better at elk hunting without ever stepping foot in the woods Jason, your your turn. So I'm going to bounce all over the place. I'm going to kind of hit on and touch on things. Number one, I think the biggest thing, and I suffered from it even when I went from hunting in my backyard um, to hunting out of state and, and not knowing where I was going, is I would force myself to kill an elk in an area because I had scouted, e-scouted that, and thought that this was the place. So I would, all right, I'm going to go in and spike out for 10 days, and that's where I'm going to hunt regardless of where the elk were have have five or six spots that you're willing that you think look good and then if spot one doesn't turn out then go to spot two spot two doesn't turn out go to spot three don't force yourself to kill an elk in a spot where there are an elk because it's not likely going to happen so that's number one um, be willing to be mobile have a plan that you don't that's one reason i'll set up a, a wall tent for mule deer but i will never set up a wall tent most likely for elk um, unless we know there's elk there, unless I'm for sure they're going to be there because it, it requires you to come back to the same spot over and over when I might need to drive three hours around the unit to get to the other ridgeline. Um, that's number one. Don't, don't hold yourself to that. Number two on the calling side, in my opinion, the biggest mistake you can make when calling is we get a bull to locate 400 yards away and you walk 50 yards closer and you locate again. And then you walk 50 yards closer and you locate again. And, and you're working your way into this bull. Do not call your way into a bull 
if you can help it. Um, you basically get him to locate, get your base map out, whatever you use. Try to assume where he's at and do not call until you get 100 yards from that elk. The nice thing is if you're approaching with the wind right, elk are pretty stinky critters. They smell like a barnyard. We've all, I, you might not have smelled them before, but if the wind's right, you will start to smell the elk before you ever get to them. Um, so that's about when you want to start get, start thinking about calling or getting set up. But don't make a peep from the time you locate until the time you get to them because what elk will want to do, we play this cat and mouse game. Anybody that's elk hunted for long enough, we've all been stuck in this game where I call from 300 yards away, the elk moves 100 yards away, now they're 400. I move 100 yards, I call again, now they're 400. That bull, the last thing he wants to do is uh, – have to potentially you know deal with fighting you or potentially losing his cows so it, it's more herd bull tactics but we also need to remember that even though we're chasing the herd bull those satellite bulls are typically two or three hundred yards away from that herd so you just need, you need to get close to those so my advice on calling is uh is don't call until you're really close you know you're on top of them um whatever it takes like i love to hear myself bugle i love to hear elk bugle um but but try to refrain from bugling your way in because it's just gonna it's gonna cause you problems down down the road number three and it's very very hard to to learn um it's that mental toughness like don't don't let yourself take a day off don't let yourself take a half a day off if you're not on elk in the morning you need to stay up at night and find elk if you're not on elk in the midday don't let yourself take a nap like you need to spend that midday just covering ridges to find elk um it's easy to take a day off but all of us that have did this long enough these hunts we can be out there for eight days nothing we haven't killed anything we haven't maybe even had an opportunity it takes that one 10 minute quick call in and the whole entire hunt changed so um i usually give like my i I wrote an article a couple times for go hunt on like what my 10 secrets are to elk hunting and i get to the end and number 10 is just time and um you I honestly believe the reason I get to kill as many elk as I do is because I now take the whole month of September off. When I was a weekend warrior, when I only had Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, um, I was the same elk hunter. I just didn't have the time to put in. And it takes so many um, so many chances before everything finally lines up and you can you can lose an arrow or lose an arrow. Uh, like Colorado, we had so many blowdowns. We, we kind of started to joke about it, but it was true. We called 10 bulls in, and for every 10 you called in, you'd have a shot at one. Uh, so much blowdown, so much brush. So don't let yourself like mentally quit anytime like don't let yourself take a nap it's going to be tough because you're going to be like oh what's a nap going to hurt but i'm i'm telling you that even some of the guys that are the best at this um it just takes 10 minutes to to, to everything to change so um and then don't be afraid to call um you know get good there's if you can't get can't use a diaphragm like i said earlier get yourself an external cow call and get yourself an external bugle of some sort and and make make sure that you're you're able to call you're confident in your calling so you can at least be a part like Dan said earlier, be a part of the elk woods. And that's, in my opinion, one of the reasons we're out there. When you first started elk hunting, I don't know about you, but like you had a dad and a mentor and stuff like I didn't. And so I didn't, I was kind of a dipshit on how I traveled in the woods. uh, As far as like, if I heard a bull bugle, I didn't really understand that the elk trails were that bull's there, but this elk trail's going that way. I'm just going to take a straight line to that elk. And so I'd end up doing a lot of straight down, cross creek straight up and i feel like if i just known that elk follow contours and they know the lay of the land like elk trails will lead you to the elk you probably already knew Mm -hmm. that but man i learned that lesson the hard way and to now where i just trust game trails and the elk really know how to navigate the mountains so um, i don't know how to describe that but it's just a kind of trust the elks the elk trails to lead you to the elk 
and stay on the elk trails. Don't, you know, try – there's no shortcuts in the mountains, and if there are, the elk know them. They pick, They take the path of least resistance. So something to think about. Yep. Let's wrap it up with one more. Building mental toughness. How do you do that? So how do you build it outside of hunting in general? I think you have to be super honest with yourself, guys. Like, I don't know how many of you in here, but I'm, I don't know if you'll admit it, but the majority of you are probably a little bit afraid of the dark, which means the last 30 minutes, maybe you're three, four miles in, you know a herd's bedded, but you're like, ah, oh, I'm going to hunt my way out. That's a code word for I'm afraid of the dark. I really want to see the trail the whole way out. And there's nothing wrong with that. I love you, Dad, but he, that's my dad. For sure, always, he always just doesn't like to hunt the last little bit of, whereas I really like, I don't enjoy hiking out in the dark, but I enjoy how good the hunting is and how predictable the wind is the last 30 minutes of daylight. And I know it's a numbers game. The more last 30 minutes I stick it out and I'm in elk, the noose is going to cinch. Does that make sense? So it does come with just doing reps and doing things that which you don't want to do daily and you kind of know that you're doing them to make yourself kill an elk if you're a psycho as me if that's really your why uh, we went for a run yesterday I've already worked out five days this week I did not like that was my rest day but I did I just didn't the run running did not sound good in the middle of the day when it was hot so I decided to go for a run and fortunately you went with me but I was going to go for a run because I didn't want to do it guess who didn't else want to do it Phelps but not did, and I didn't not all people are born mentally tough you know what I mean like Phelps is kind of one of those weirdos where he, he is he's got it I, I need to practice being mentally tough um, not everybody does so what's your secret because you are tough like you killed that bear just a couple weeks ago in a shithole and it yeah. was miserable but I bet you I bet yeah, you crushed I mean, it I don't like I said I mentioned earlier super competitive um it's it's always been in my blood and it's more of a challenge with myself like I would be I'll be hunched over puking on the mountain before I try to let you like get to the ridge top before me yeah um I'll also be honest with myself like man I'm gonna die if I keep up this pace but <laughs> it's more of a um this answer is not gonna help all of you but it's gonna be my reason why I hunt with somebody else um, I'm very, very smart at picking out pe I'm extremely headstrong. Like I'm stubborn. I'm not going to let the mountain beat me. It, it's more of a mentality. Now your question I think is how do you get there though? I have, I have amazing hunting partners, amazing cameramen that are always with me and I'm not going to lie. There's times where they get down and I pick them up. I'm like, no, we're not going. We got this. We, we've been so close. We're going to stick it out. There's times when they get down, I get down and we we're able to feed off of each other, whether it's me and a hunting partner and the camera guy. I surrounded myself with people that never, because the second, like if both of us agreed that we should probably go back to the truck, we're loading our camp and we're heading back. And it's, it's the worst feeling ever. And you get to the truck, you're like, man, why was I such a, why did I let that get to me? Why did I make this stupid decision? Unless I honestly felt it was my best chance to kill an elk. But if we're an elk and, you know, I don't want to climb 2,000 feet, like I'll never, ever, and I'll even fake it sometimes. There are times where I want to go to the truck, but I'm like, no, we got to go up. There's been elk there every morning. They're there again. We got to go up. Um, so I, I'm, it's not an answer necessarily to help somebody hunting solo. Um, and then I think the other way to build it, uh, you know, it, it try to steal a playbook from Cameron Haynes. And I don't think you have to do it to his level by any means, but I think you can build a lot of mental toughness through physical fitness, physical exertion. If you've pushed yourself so hard 
um, outside of in the woods that you've been to that place before. You've been to those dumps. You've pushed yourself this hard and you can't, you're like, oh, this doesn't even exhaust me anymore. Um, you can, through that physical fitness, um, build that mental toughness. I think more so from a mindset that you've been there before. You've been in these dumps. You've, you've had to push through the same situation before on a workout or a hike. Um, you can start to build that mental toughness. And then as Dan said, I'm just, I've did it enough now that I know what it takes. I'm, I want to be successful more so to challenge myself, but more than anything else while I'm out there. And it's that drive that he's, even as a bigger guy um, is, you know, a guy that I've did it enough. I know what it takes. I know what I need to be in for shape wise. And I just, I won't let myself fail. It's more of a, an internal battle that I'm not leaving until there's an elk on my back before I hike out this trail. Um, did that help at all? It's tough. It's mental toughness. You either you've either got it or you've got to earn it through a lot of physical torture. Develop, yeah. And now, do you have a hunting partner? Do you have a hunting partner? Because it'd be nice to find someone like Jason's talking about, where like literally you guys have an understanding that when you're down and out, I'm up. When you're homesick, I'm not. Vice versa, where we kind of help each other stay at our best. Because we will certainly never be at our best on the mountain. In fact, you get exposed. Uh, and if you do go solo. Hey, you know, you face some demons on the mountain. Like there's a whole, you know, if you got skeletons in your closet, they come out. If you, like a lot of things, it's get flushed out when you're hitting reset on the computer, like you said on September. And it's, what's why it's so good, but uh, find that partner, man. Yeah, I, I try to just remember like there's only 30 days. Is there 30 or 31 days in September? I can't believe you just asked that. There's 30 days. 30 days. That's what I thought. You Maybe know, you, you've been shooting bulls on October 1st when it's <laughs> September 30th. Yeah, you got to remember, like, that's that's the other driver for me is I, I'll get down in the dumps. I can remember one specific situation, blew it on a giant Roosevelt bull, one of the biggest Roosevelt bulls ever. I was in, I can remember we were eating lunch next to my bike, and I was in the dumps. Like, I was trying to talk myself into, you don't have to push this hard. Um, you know, and there is, there's a fun aspect that I need to maintain, but I was struggling, um, just blew it again for like the third day in a row. And I can remember sitting there like, man, this isn't worth it. Like, let's just go home. Like, this isn't a good place to be in. And then you got to kind of combat with that idea. Like, man, you've looked forward to this all year. Why are you making this so miserable? This is what you love to do. Um, get back on the bike, get back on the horse, so to speak, and, and get back after it. But I think, I think you're not human unless you have some, no matter how good a shape you're in, no matter how good things are going, you're going to run into some of those like internal battles and kind of have to, you know, kind of chase the demons out and, uh, and stay with it. Cause it is no matter how headstrong you are, all of my buddies that are as stubborn as I am, we've all went through that. We're like, man, is this worth, let's go to somewhere else. Let's do this. But it, we kind of come back to that. It's September. It's what we love. And then we all want to succeed and watch each other succeed. And that's the other thing. When you see your buddy running a camera calling for you and he's wanting to work just as hard as you, that's the only one that has a tag left. It's kind of that inspiration to kind of keep going. Like we're all in this, we're all in this um, together for each other. And uh, like I said, it doesn't necessarily help you if you don't have a good hunting partner, but it's something that I wouldn't be the same hunter without um, you know, having hunting partners like that. All right, guys, we're going to go to dinner. That's a wrap on day two. We got one more day and that's going to be... 7 a.m., body fat measurements, uh, and then we're going to go right into nutrition, and then we're going to go into a warm-up injury prevention. We're going to do a test-out workout. When we're done with that, we're going to go over some principles of building your own garage gym, and then we have a team workout, and then I think after that, we might be out of time, but we'll try to get everything done. It'll be good. Awesome. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Yep.
See, I told you guys that was a good podcast, one of my favorite. There's some really good nuggets in there of information. Hopefully, you're listening to this as maybe you're driving down to Elk Camp. Enjoy it. Squeeze every drop out of it. September is fight night. Do not squander a second on the mountain. Put your best foot forward. Have no regrets. Take some risks. Learn, evolve, and enjoy the process. You guys have a lot of options when it comes to podcasts, so thanks for listening to us. Do me a favor. Tell a buddy, tell a friend about this podcast. And if you're if your hunt's not till mid-September, which is a lot of you, I want you to get 21 Days to Elk Shape. That's a three-week program to literally set you up to be in the best shape that you could possibly be given the time. And we include shooting under duress so that you can do the drills to really, truly know your effective range while you're wearing a backpack with a high heart rate. Thank you guys for your support. We'll catch you on the next one.